0: Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to consider uh, continue our studies this morning in 1 Samuel. This morning we'll be looking at um, a little extended, and I'm going to just... Uh, Brother Joe reminded me about cliff notes. Next time we're going to study using cliff notes, kind of compact it. But uh, we're going to be looking at two portions of First Samuel, First Samuel chapter thirteen, verses one through fourteen, and then chapter fifteen, which are really uh, uh, connected, uh, connected sections. Is there something? Can I do something with this thing? It's kind of annoying. All right. No. Okay. Oh, there we go. Now it's standing up. Good. So we're going to try to cover those couple, and so we're going to move a little rapid. I know if you come here at all, we always have a late start, right? So you know better than to have your dinner prepared by twelve thirty, you know you need to wait till at least like one o'clock, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So <laughs> Romeo. Thanks, brother. Wow. <laughs> Two o'clock. <laughs> all right. Well, um, these two portions are connected, First uh, Samuel 13 as well as uh, 15. And you know, w- one of the observations that I'd like to make. And by the way, we're just we're gonna do we're gonna move pretty quick. I have uh, generally I operate under uh, the presentation this morning is we will do um, observation, we will do interpretation, and then application. So that's the direction that we're going to take this morning, um, which I think is really helpful. You know, uh, just as an introduction, you know, the Old Testament, it's a it it wonderfully um, illustrates uh, case studies. It illustrates case studies in different areas. Sometimes it's in normal lifestyle. Sometimes it's in uh, um, abnormal lifestyle. There are. Case studies all throughout the Old Testament and it illustrate illustrate principles, right? And, you know, if you know anything about psychology, I'm not a big psychology person, but the little bit that I do know that most psychology is based around case studies in real life. Well, the Old Testament has, is, is full of case studies. And this is one of them. Case studies that illustrate p- principles uh, being taught in the terms of real people and real incidents. And these case studies, in a lot of way, begin to reveal the hearts of men. Right? That's the purpose of a case study, is to reveal... The hearts of men and the Old Testament is filled with fascinating studies, illustrating principles God wishes us to know. And by the way, the Old Testament truths, they set forth in a lot of ways the New Testament reality, you know, really. As we read through the Bible, we can find our own case studies in so many ways, can't we? We find our own case studies. Well, 1 Samuel, we've already talked about it here for a few weeks, is really uh, a book about two men and a judge. It's really, it's about two men and a judge. And the two men they illustrate two principles of the heart of every Christian who desires to walk according to the will of the Lord. And the two principles that are illustrated in these two men, one is the principle of the flesh, and the other one is the principle of faith. First Samuel is really about Samuel, of course, and it's the end of his reign as judge. And it introduces a a new dispensation in the life of Israel as they desire and they bring in a man appointed king called Saul. And then later on, of course, now in chapter 15, we are at the end of the epic of Saul. And whoever comes next, we're going to begin the new epic of King David. Now, Saul is illustrative of the flesh. David, on the other hand, illustrates faith. And these are two valid principles that affect the life of every believer, our flesh and our faith. And, you know, both of these men as well, illustrate for us, uh, in a lot of ways, the supremacy of the will in human life. Because we each have a will, right? And we see in these lives uh, how important it is in our lives, our will. The supremacy of our will in life. And we discover that each one of us, we're going to see is in many ways, just like David and Saul, we are a king and we have a kingdom. And the decisions that we make and the things that we do affect that kingdom. Right? And so our will is supreme in our lives and we're going to see as well is that God will not overrule your will. He will not. Later, the Apostle Paul will write in Romans and, and, and declare how because of the heart of men, God would turn them over. If that's what you will, go for it. Right? So we see that our will influences our whole kingdom. The kingdom in our own lives in which you reign. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 6, it says, For to set the mind on the flesh... Is death. But to set the mind on the spirit. Is life. And peace. So first Samuel. These three men as well. They mark off. And this is a little bit. Kind of helping us to get into context. Of these two passages. These first three men as well. Can mark off the division. Of the book of first Samuel. The chapters one through seven. They mark the life of Samuel as the last judge over Israel. And as well as they they mark the human expression of the voice of God to both Saul and David. Chapters eight through fifteen they mark the life of King Saul, who is the man of the flesh. And then chapters sixteen through thirty one. They mark the life of David, who is the man of faith. So and as I said, our text for today uh, illustrates to us the heart and the will of Saul, the first king. So let's start off by going back to first Samuel, chapter 13. And we're just going to read and maybe pick out a few thoughts and then come up with some things that we can take away. Right. Because this is a case study, right? Maybe you're going to find your own life here in some way and um, do a little counseling to one another, right? First Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. It reads, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years, oh, and when he had reigned two years over. And by the way, that introduction uh, verse there in the manuscripts, The numeral was lost, so nobody really knows what that number started out as, how, you know, when it says Saul reigned one year and when he had reigned two years over Israel. It's a little confusing. Verse 2, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gebeah. Of Benjamin and the rest of the people, he sent away every man to his tent. Now we want to back up a little bit. We want to think about some of the things that have already happened. Remember, Saul was chosen to be the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, and he was reluctant to do it. You know, when he was chosen and when God had given him uh, three signs uh, earlier on in, in chapters eight and nine to indicate that that God that that he would be the he would be the King of Israel. he was reluctant, even to the point we talked about at the last meeting that when he was chosen and when it was announced that he would be the king, he wasn 't there. He was hiding in the baggage right and so he was kind of a reluctant king but then some kind of a th- some things happened. He was installed as king, and uh he he had a couple of battles in uh in in um, He beat the Ammonites in chapter 11, right? Uh, He was anointed the king, then he beat the Ammonites. And things started going kind of well for him. And I think the reluctance sort of began to change. And he began to kind of fit in here a little bit more and his willingness to be the king. And so here they are. uh, He's feeling his oats, so to speak. And, you know, and by the way, they're up against, they're in in an environment, a very violent environment, where there's constant battle, there's constant war, there is constant conflict toward the things of God. And, you know, we have just maybe, you know, in our own world, we can make an application to that. We think of even as mentioned, some of the decisions that are made today uh, legislatively and how they affect us, right? How they af- affect our, uh, 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 our understand not our understanding of man, but how they affect our faith, how they oppose our faith, right? Because, you know, when men uh, set up statues that deny the commands of God or refuse to obey the commands of God, ultimately, they, they, it, is a, it is a conflict that we who follow the Lord Jesus Christ have to deal with, right? And I know our hearts just go, sometimes, right? And later on, we're going to see here that even the Lord God would say he relented, he repented about Saul because of his ways. But anyhow, we, so we get down here. And, and so here they are at conflict. The Philistines are there. Uh, and verse 3, and Jonathan, by the way, you know, here's Saul sitting in his luxury, and he's always surrounding himself with the most powerful people. And uh, as as he begins to develop as a king and Jonathan, it says, attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gebeah and the Philistines heard of it. Now, the Philistines were not like the Ammonites. They weren't some small clan of people. They were a big uh, offense. uh, They were a they were a big conflict. This was they were starting to get in with the. The big boys, it says, and continuing in verse three, then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. So Saul says there, there's, there's been this conflict. Jonathan attacked the garrison and all of Israel heard it. And, that, and what they heard was that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination of the Philistines. So there was a kind of a self-seeking here, you know. Uh, he's beginning to develop. His pride is starting to develop. His, he's, he's now uh, bloating himself up, taking credit for things that he hasn't done. Well, it kind of backfires on him here, right? Because he's approached a, a mighty foe here. And the Philistines, they, 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 they look at Israel and it says they become an abomination, and the people were called to Saul at Giga. And then the Philistines gathered to fight with Israel. And there were so many more. There were 30,000 chariots and horsemen, it says. And the people is the sand, the sand which is on the seashore in a multitude. And they came up and they encamped in Michmash to the east of ben When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed... The people hid in caves, in the thickets, in rocks. So things began to change here. And the fear started to to instill in the lives of the people. And here they were called to go into a land where they were to conquer by faith. And they began to take their eyes off of the one who was providing for them and began to look at their own strength. And it generated fear. Fear. It says, and some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And as for Saul, well, he kind of just stayed put in Gilgal. And all of the people followed him trembling. So here we see the cowardice of him. We see, we see the pride that he has in his own, you know, uh, this, is the, this, is, this is the democracy that Israel wanted. He was the king of the people. And then Saul begins here uh, to look and in fear, it says in, in verse eight, and then he waited seven days. There was, according to the time set by Samuel, Samuel, again, Samuel is the human spokesman for God, right? He's the human expression for God still at this point in the transition. And there is an authority that he maintains here. And Saul was to wait for him. Before they were to perform the priestly service. But Samuel didn't come. He, and providentially, I believe that God kind of had Samuel, you know, uh, 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 a little late, had Samuel uh, restrict his time from getting there. And it says here, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul begins to start to fear and the cowardice. Starts raising up in him. So Saul said. Bring a burnt offering. And we'll just kind of glaze through this. And he begins to do the priestly thing himself. He makes the offering. He, he burns the offering. Uh, and, and it happened. That as soon as he finished. Samuel shows up. And that's what makes me think it was providential. It was God's work. Beginning to reveal The heart of this character Saul. In verse 11 it says and Samuel said, "What have you done?" And Saul said, "Well, when I saw that the people were scattered, I took things into my own hands." I be- I took things into my own hands. The people were scattered, and you didn't come when you were supposed to come. The Philistines gathered together in Mikmash, and and I just kind of took things into my own hands and and you know that happens, doesn't it? That happens in our daily lives. I know. We just get a little anxious about it. And instead of waiting, we take things into our own hands. In verse 13, and Samuel said, You have done foolishly. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your akin kingdom over Israel forever. Had you continued in faith that God would protect and provide, you would have been established. But you decided to walk according to the flesh. And because of that, verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has thought for himself a man after his own heart. And By the way, I think in this section, that, this is the key verse. This is, this is the result of the case study. Okay, this is what should have happened, but, this, but it's not what happened. The Lord was looking for a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord had commanded you. Right. And let me just make this point. Was I mean, what's the big deal? You know, he made a burnt, burnt offering. He made a sacrifice to the Lord. Well, the big deal is he took it into his own hands. Right. And partial obedience is equivalent to disobedience. And that's what the case study reveals here that Saul, walking in the flesh, was disobedient. And as a result, the kingdom was going to be taken from him, judicially. Now, let's jump over into chapter 15, and we're going to move a little quickly here. In chapter 15, Samuel continues uh, to talk to Saul, and Samuel said to Saul, okay, I'm going to give you, you're going to get another chance. You're going to, the last time trouble came up, The last time you had the opportunity to walk in faith, you decided to walk in the flesh and you failed. I'm going to give you another chance. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Here you get. Pay attention, Samuel. God's going to give you an opportunity to redeem yourself. Let's pay attention. And this is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These are your instructions. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. And by the way, you can read this back in Exodus. I think it's chapter 17 when they were coming through. And it was right after uh, when Moses had, had uh, struck the rock the first time. They were in the wilderness and they were weary and they were thirsty and they were afraid. And then uh, uh, God would provide the refreshment, the water. And right after that, Amalek would. And by the way, Amalek is, uh, from my understanding, it's the it's the the generation from Esau. And so Esau was the man who would always what? He was always going to contend. Right. Esau was the man who was more interested in satisfying his own belly. Right. Uh, And so and as a result of that, there's conflict. So uh, the Lord is telling him you're going to attack. And by the way, Amalek is in in the scriptures is illustrative of the flesh. The flesh. Right. And he says, you go and utterly in verse three. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and women, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Whoa, that seems fierce, doesn't it? Now, why would God do something like that? And people would say, I thought God was a loving God. Well, he is a loving God, right? But he's a jealous God and he's a righteous God and he's a just God. And if you are going to in any way try to try to uh, 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 defer the purposes of God, he will annihilate. Even in Saul, we see Saul, was, his kingdom was taken from him because he misrepresented God. And God will not tolerate that. So, so you know, he's, he's going in, he's, he's told exactly what to do. It says so. He gathered the people together and he numbered them. And verse five, and he came to the city of, and he laid in wait. In verse six, and then while he was there, he remembered. I don't know. Probably, probably, uh, you know, the Lord had given revelation regarding the Kenites. And the Kenites were a people that were the friends of Israel. They weren't as large as. the Amalek, and they weren't fierce people. They were actually, the Kenites were the relatives of the father-in-law of Moses, uh, Jethro. They were Jethro's family. And when Israel had left Egypt, and you can read it in uh, Judges chapter 1, they had welcomed Israel and they gave them a place to stay. And so it says here, uh, Saul said to the Kenites, you know, you guys were getting ready to attack the Amalekites, uh, and, and we don't want to destroy you with them, so, you know, go ahead and you guys get out of town. And, uh, and then after that, it says verse 7, and Saul attacked the Amalekites, uh, the, Amalekites, the Amalekites, all the way from Havilah to Shur, I mean, the entire nation, he attacked them, and as a result, in the process, he decided to take King Agag or Agag perhaps as a, uh, a, a token of his supremacy, a token of his victory, right? He would take the king. And sometimes they would do that and they would like, cut their thumbs off or do something for him so they couldn't function like that anymore. But that's not what he was called to do, right? So he would take Agag, king of the Amalekites, he would take him alive. He destroyed all of the other people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people, well, they spared Agag and, uh, you know, and the best of the sheep and oxen and all of the good things and, and, you know, anything that was despised, all the spoiled meat, all the crippled people, all of that, they kind of just annihilated them. Uh, but everything... Uh, that was good, they kept for themselves. Now, while this happened, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, and he says, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as a king, for he has turned back from me, from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Let me just say this. Once again, partial obedience is equivalent to disobedience and here it is again and just a thought you know It says here later on we're going to read uh, um, that in verse 29 where Samuel would say and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent it says here that he regretted does God regret well I think this is an. is can I say it's an anthropomorphic term Right. Um, to help us to understand that it didn't please God. Right. It wasn't pleasing to him. Uh, he doesn't regret. God doesn't regret anything. He doesn't lie. He doesn't make mistakes. And he doesn't regret things. But it very well displeased him. And to illustrate it to us in human terms, it says, I regretted it. I regretted it. Right. And. Right. Um, so here we have partial disobedience again in verse 12. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told to Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel and indeed he set up. a Amazing. He goes to Carmel and he sets up a monument to who? To himself. He set up a monument to himself. And, he, and, and check it out. Not only does he set a monument up, but he's going around. He's doing this. Look at me. I've, look what I've done. And he's going, it says that he's going around. And, uh, and indeed, he set up a monument in front. Him. He's going around. He passed by. And now he's gone down to Gilgal, where it's nice and safe. And he can get all the fanfare. Right? And then Samuel went to Saul and, and Saul said to him, Samuel sees him coming, and you know how it is. You know, I'm kind of a religious kind of guy. I know my religious things to say. You know, God bless you. Lord willing. You know, and all of those, you know, colloquiums that we say. And here he is. Saul sees the man of God coming. He sees the human experience of God coming. And what does he say? He says, uh, blessed are you of the lord i have performed the commandment of the lord really really <laughs> but samuel said well and it's really kind of funny how he does this well then you know what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which i hear if you've done what you were told why and why is all this activity going on why is all this glee going on why is and that would be an it would it would indicate uh, an environment of celebration, the bleeding of the sheep and the oxen. And it, that's not what God had called him to do. And Saul said, well, um, he turns around and this sounds this sounds it sounds like we're back in Genesis chapter three. He says what he says. He says they have in verse 15, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. So there's some blame going on here. He's not taking responsibility. Okay, this one who was reluctant to be the king, who had a couple victories, whose pride was provoked, but under that pride, that cow- see this is a case study of cowardice, because oftentimes those who are haughty and run around, it's because they're scared on the inside. They're cowards on the inside. And so um, Samuel said, Samuel looks at him and he just says, Just shut up. I'm done listening to you. Be quiet. And I'm going to tell you what the Lord told me last night. And it broke my heart even to think about it. <clears throat> so Samuel said, "When, when Listen to this. When, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? In other words, before you got all that pride, when you were reluctant to be the king, when you were reluctant to take charge and have any victory, didn't God choose you to make you the king? I mean, who made you king, by the way? Right? The people appointed him, but God had chosen. him. Right? When you when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission, and said, "Go and utterly destroy the sinners and Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed." And uh, then you did not obey the, the voice of the Lord. Why'd you swoop on the spoil and and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel said, and Saul said to Samuel. But I did obey the voice of the Lord. Did he? Partially he did. Partially he did. Can I say this? Partial obedience is what? Disobedience. Right? But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And I gone on a mission that the Lord sent me. And, and look, I brought back. This sounds to me like, have I ever said this before? The better idea syndrome. God, you told me to do this, but, you know, I got a better idea. Right? I got a better idea. And he, and he says, and then, then he goes on verse, but the people took the plunder. Again, here he goes. You know, I took the king, you know, just as kind of a token of our victory. The people, they did this. It doesn't matter. He was the king. He was going to be held responsible. So Samuel said to him, has the Lord is great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams. Right? For, the re- for, the rebellion, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. They were very familiar with these uh, these sins of witchcraft and rebellion. They were very very much aware of stubbornness and idolatry because they saw it. They saw it in the nations of the other people, right? And He's saying, "You've done this." It reminds me of that passage. In the Sermon on the Mount. Doesn't it? Where the Lord has said. You have heard it said. Thou shalt not. Commit murder. But I say. If you've hated your brother. In your heart. You've already done it. Right? And he goes on to illustrate. Those things. Look at verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel. And he realizes what he's done. Now. Fear kind of. Enters into him. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel saw right through this man. Samuel saw that he wasn't a man after God's own heart. This was not the man that God had wanted. And Samuel refused to go with him. Samuel said, I will not go with you. I will not return with you. Why? Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Obviously, the things that we do and the things that we say express that study of our own heart. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And so in verse 27, and as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul got, started thinking about it. Started, and he seizes, his, he seizes Samuel. He sees the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you. In other words, it's, it's set in stone right now. Judgment has come. Judicially, the kingdom will be taken away from you. And he's given it to your neighbor who is better than you. right? Because Saul was a man of the flesh. God was looking for a man of faith. And then Samuel says, And also the strength of the Lord will not lie nor relent in this matter. God will not change his mind. Sounds like Romans chapter 1, doesn't it? He'll turn you over. If you want to live like that, go right ahead. It's your will. God will not overrule your will. It's the will of God that all men be saved. Right? But he wants your will to align with his will. So he says he won't lie. He won't relent. For he's not a man that he should relent. And then Saul says, I have sinned yet. Here we go. Here's that pride again. Even though I've sinned, I don't want to be, even though I have been humiliated before God, don't humiliate me before the people. And you know what? Men are like that. They're more concerned about hurting other people than they are offending a holy God. We don't want to offend the people. I don't want to be humiliated by the people, even though God knows, right? So he he pleads with him. You know, he says, he says, I've sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. And here's, Sam, here's Samuel. He turned and he goes back with him, with Saul, and, and he worshiped the Lord. Right? And there are those people who come to worship, right? But they're still men of flesh. Right? This case study. Reveals to us, just because you do those things, doesn't make you a man of faith. All right, we've been speaking in Galatians about our salvation is based on, it's based on faith. Our faith. Not on those outward things, but on faith. Well, when he gets there, Samuel turns and he said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came cautiously and he said he was he was like timid about it but he was hoping that the danger was gone and things are settled down but no the man of God says to him as your sword has made women childless and they were brutal people the Amalekites were brutal they would have disrupted even the very purposes of God if God hadn't intervened here. They would have. He says as your sword is made. Women childless. So shall your mother be childless. Among women. And he hacked Agag in pieces. Before the Lord in Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went his way. To Gebeah. And Samuel went no more to Saul. There was no more. Of the. Judge. Of the, the expression. Of. Of the word of God. To Saul. He was a man of flesh. But Saul. Samuel. Still mourned for Saul. Says in verse 35. And the Lord regretted that he had made. Saul king over Israel. The disobedient king. If I haven't said this already. Partial obedience. Is equivalent. To disobedience. So, what can we take away from this case study of the disobedient king? I think in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, we see that the man of the flesh depends upon his own resources and gets in trouble. (laughs) And gets in trouble. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, we hear the Lord Jesus say, But seek ye first what kingdom? My own kingdom? No. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Right? That's what the man of faith does. Saul was the man of the flesh. We see in in chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, that the man of the flesh thinks that the outward marks of faith are all that is really necessary. The external kingdom. That's all that really matters. Well, the Apostle Paul would write to the church in Rome and he would say, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Those external things ought to be a result of an internal change. All throughout history, God has been on an inside job. (laughs) It's an inside job. He wants to clean us up from the inside out, right? The Lord Jesus would say, oh, you wash the outside, and you're like a, a, a nice, bright, white, painted tomb. But on the inside, the Pharisees were like that. So we see that the man of flesh depends upon his own resources. He thinks that the outward marks are the most important thing. You know, and then, in chapter fifteen, verses one through fifteen, we see that the man of the flesh presumes to find something good in what God declares bad. Well, it's not so bad, and we do that. We measure ourselves by ourselves, right? I'm not that bad. I haven't killed anybody. You know, I haven't stolen anything. I pay my taxes. I'm not that bad. Well, Colossians chapter three tells us, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right? If God says it's bad, it's bad. Stay away from it. Partial obedience is disobedience. If we Spare what God's commanded us to destroy it. It might destroy us. More than likely it will destroy us. We want to take care of our own obedience. We serve a, an exacting but a loving God. Another thing I think we can take away in chapter 15 verses 16 through 25 is that the man of the flesh. Well he kind of finds excuses to justify himself. Right. Well, the people. Well, it's my culture. Well, I can't help. Sometimes I just get angry. Right. I can justify it. And that's what the man of the flesh does. First John one nine tells us what if we confess our sins. Right. If we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's the one who wants to do the changing in us, right? The man of the flesh, he justifies it. The man of faith admits it and looks for that cleansing change, right? Another thing I think we can see in verses 26 through 35 is that the man of the flesh, well, he's more interested in the honor of men than the obedience to God. He wants the honor of men, regardless of what God has commanded. And lastly, I think we understand this, that God is not interested with external ritualism. He's not interested in legalism. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law... For, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make you perfect those who draw near. In other words, the law, the legalism, is not going to make you perfect. He goes on in verse 2, and he says, Otherwise they would have ceased to be offered. They would have seized him in, in, in Hebrews 10, 3. He says, but in these sacrifices, there is just a reminder. The law is just a reminder that there's a sanctifying work going on for the man of faith. In chapter 4, he says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. Or in chapter 10, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was, the law was never designed to take away your sins. The law was only designed to reveal you, to show you what your case study concludes. And if yours concludes like mine does, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And then in verse five, he says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he says, all those sacrifices and all those offerings, they don't really make me happy. But a body have you prepared for me, my life. Who I am, you have prepared for me. Burn offerings and sin offerings, you have no pleasure. And then the Lord says, behold, I have come to do your will. Oh God, I have come to do your will, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The Lord Jesus' work as a Savior was effective because of his voluntary Identification of divine purposes. Now that's a big statement. The Lord Jesus' sacrifice was affected because of his voluntary identification with divine purpose. Saul wasn't interested in divine purpose as much as he was his own purpose, he was a man of the flesh. Later on, we'll be talking about David, a man after God's own heart. There was a man of faith, right? You know, when the Lord Jesus was crucified, it, it wasn't not just so much that outward anguish, that, that blood shedding. That wasn't necessarily what made reconciliation possible, right? The physical dying wasn't necessarily what saves you. Right? But it was his cry, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Right? That's what the Lord is looking for. A man of faith, a man after God's own heart. We see in this case study, Saul failed. What does your case study say? Are you a man of faith or a man of the flesh? I'm a man of faith. Very good, Romeo. If you are, God is pleased with one thing. Obedience. Obedience. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't try to protect himself. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, what? Obedient. How obedient? <laughs> Even to the point, the death of the cross. Amazing. God doesn't ask you to, do, to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. He's not called us to all these religiosity and legalism He wants your obedience. And guess what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things will come and he'll take care of you, right? Saul, what does this case study tell us? He failed. He was a man of the flesh. Let us consider our own lives. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these case studies. Thank you for the time that we get together and seriously dig in and seriously um, walk through uh, your word, which is, as Samuel was to Saul and David, the human expression of the word of the mouth of God, of the will of God. We thank you for it, Father. pray that you just take the time we've had together this morning. And utilize it for your glory. In Jesus' name I praise. Amen. Amen.